Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and I am joined by my co-host, as always, Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And this is our weekly, or at least usually our weekly podcast, looking at, you guessed it, what could go right in the world. Not through a starry-eyed, Pollyannish, rose-tinted lens that everything, in fact, is going well. Many things are not, and everyone is aware of it. And that's all we talk about, all the things that are always going wrong and all the things that might go wrong. And at any given time, on any given day, and in any given week, there is plenty out there that is going wrong that animates our collective consciousness and our conversations. So we have attempted in our podcast and in the Progress Network to shed some light on what is going right or what might go right or what could go right given all the assiduous efforts of so many people to try to make sure that things go right and not wrong. In that spirit, welcome to 2024. I think this is our second episode of 2024, but our first conversation that is really about the year ahead. Uh, we've come out of a pretty trying few months in our world. Of course, one could say that every few months in our world at any point in the past decades has been trying for somebody somewhere in some way. So we're gonna try to look ahead in this conversation about what 2024 holds. No one has a crystal ball. Everyone pretends they do, and it doesn't stop lots of people from prognosticating with great oracular authority as if they know what's going to happen. I personally have no idea what's going to happen, although I do think we have some thoughts about what might. So Emma, why don't you kick us off and tell us what we should be looking at and what we should be talking about and what we should be thinking about. For those of you who do not already subscribe to the Progress Network newsletter, which is conveniently shares the same title as the podcast, What Could Go Right? Uh, Emma writes that every week with great clarity and delightful style. And I think we'll use our most recent installment of the newsletter to kick off our conversation. Yes, so if you didn't read the newsletter, you don't know that 2024 is the mother of all election years. Some people are calling it the Super Bowl of election years. And 2024 is expected to be the largest expression of democracy in human history, with more than half of the world's population living in countries that will host nationwide elections next year. But in many of the largest and most important elections, including in the United States, it is democracy itself that will be on the ballot. 
there are, depending on who you ask, there are different counts. But the highest count that I found is from the Atlantic Council, and that's 83 elections happening in 2024. Over 50 of those are national elections, so presidential, prime minister, that kind of thing, occurring in 78 different countries. That includes a lot of heavy hitters. Altogether, this means that more people are going to be voting this year than any other year in history. So billions of people are going to be flocking to the polls. Hopefully, I mean, maybe they'll all be sitting at home not going to the polls, but we're going to assume that they're going to be going to the polls. So that includes seven of the world's 10 most populous countries, India, the US, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Russia, Mexico. A keen observer might think to yourself, well, some of those quote-unquote elections that are happening are not exactly happening in free and fair and functioning democracies, and you would be correct about that. According to foreign policy, we've got 55% of the national elections occurring in full or flawed democracies, 30% in authoritarian. So I'm going to start with that. I don't think the Russian election is going to be a nail-biter. <laughs> I don't I think mean... Putin... Putin's not going to be holed up with his staff on election night, the bowl of popcorn and some uh, Stolichnaya or whichever, <laughs> you know, Russian standard glued to the TV, wondering, wondering, am I going to pull it off? I think it's more going to be the, do I get 99.8% of the vote or 99.7? And that's going to be the, the real drama in that evening. But many of those elections will be, you know, interesting to watch. Even India, which... I think we're going to try to have a, a soon episode on India and its emergence as a China of the 2020s, for lack of a better parallel. I don't think anyone doubts that Modi is almost certain to win, but in what way the BJP will win and in what composition and how much they'll win state by state. and like All that is an open question and will be an open question until election night. Look, my my cursory read of of how people are looking at the year shaping up of those eighty three elections or seventy eight countries is more already the panoply of trepidation that mm. surrounds these. That there's a degree of oh my god, you know, this is going to lead to the year of geopolitical instability. That seems to be a theme right now, late December into January. For those who like articulating a theme, like we every year needs a theme. Apparently, it's, it's sort of like. Uh, the Fashion Institute annual Met Gala. You know, we, need, like, we need a theme this year. This the, year, the theme is the everyone's the dressing year. in geopolitical instability. <laughs> yes. It's not teal or turquoise or lavender, but it's geopolitical volatility. Yes. What are you wearing? What's the latest fashion? And, I, you know, it's true. Elections in contested places with lots of divisions and partisan divides are question marks that raise the possibility of bad things happening. And... Clearly, the United States is going to be ground zero for those questions, no matter what side of the political aisle you are on. And it is true demographically that most people listening to this podcast probably do not fall into the I want Trump to be president camp. But this election is going to be it's going to be a challenging election in the United States. It's not it's not going to bring out our better selves. It's not going to be, as Stephen Pinker said, it's not going to remind us of the better angels of our nature. And that is true in multiple countries. But I think you pointed out in your writings, Emma, and I think we share a view that more people participating in whatever this messy thing we call democracy is a good thing net-net for the world because it represents more people trying to have a say and trying to have a voice and believing that they should have a voice. The whole principle of voting is you believe that you have a say. 
uh, I did a piece at, for the Wall Street Journal at the end of the year last year for the literally the last issue, December 30th, and mused that there are two ways you can look at massive collective global discontent, one of which is everybody is really dissatisfied with things as they are, and the mood is darkening, and people are sour, and we live in a kind of dyspeptic, dystopian time. I know I've said dyspeptic, dystopian multiple times on the podcast, so for those of you who feel like you've heard that before and are getting tired of me saying it, I apologize, but it has a certain kind of nice alliterative ring to it. And the, the flip side is people being really discontent and going to the polls where they can and casting a vote for a person or party that they feel is going to change things. And you vote for someone because you think they're going to change things for the better, right? Every Trump voter is not voting because they think Trump is going to make the country worse. They're voting because they think he's going to make the country better. We, you, anyone may disagree with that, just like they disagree with whoever is being voted for on the other side. But the very act of doing so can be construed as a, I have a voice. I think that voice should be heard. And I think the system as it is, isn't working and it should, and it can. And so there's a degree to which democracy provides an outlet for uh, individual self-respect and collective self-determination, which is part of the point of democracy, I think that's an incredible thing and, and is a potential source of really positive change. I don't know. What do you think? Is that hopelessly optimistic? Um, I think it veer, it, even for me, it veers on, I don't want to say Pollyannish, but it definitely veers on we're ignoring some of these countries where they're, even if they're not a full authoritarian country like Russia or North Korea, North Korea is also holding elections, by the way. Another nail biter, uh, as you said. Even somewhere like Bangladesh or Pakistan or India, where the system's just not working exactly as it should. There's allegations of people fixing seats or not letting other parties run and things like that. I, you know, we should be kind of presenting people with that reality as well. I think the optimistic view on that is that despite all these systems that are flawed, like you're saying, that people are still coming out, that they're not giving in to the cynicism. I've seen a lot of framing, not only as geopolitical instability and volatility, but that democracy is on the ballot in 2024, which I think is an enormous overstatement. I don't think that there are elections going on where people are like, yes, I would fully like to vote for an authoritarian figure because I would like a dictatorship. People who are listening to this who are virulently anti-Trump might greatly disagree with me, but I actually think that even Trump voters in the United States are not voting for Trump because they think that he's a dictator. <laughs> you know, to your to your point uh, before, I think they just don't see the threats that other people see to be as great of threats, or they see threats from the other side to be as great or even greater. So I am really curious. I feel like in 2023, the big story that everybody got wrong was the United States economy and where the U.S. is going to be as far as inflation, jobs, wages, and all of that. I'm seeing a lot of stories come out now in early 2024 about how everybody was wrong about that. I'm really curious how we're going to look at this uh, in the you know January 2025 and see, did democracy survive? Because that's how it's being framed right now. And even if there are a lot of elections that don't, quote unquote, go the way that we want, even if we do have individual countries that might fall into hard times, I really don't think that this is going to be the deciding year where democracy just disappears. Yeah, we had this conversation in the wake of the U.S. midterm elections in 2022, 
which as we reflected at the time, and as many people reflected at the time, were remarkably smooth. You know, the outcome didn't please a lot of people, and no outcome of an election is likely to please a lot of people because somebody who you want to win is going to lose. Like, that's just the reality of a democratic election. But there was such agita leading up to November of 2022 in the United States and such conviction that this was going to be some really divisive replay of 2020 leading into January 6, 2021. And none of that happened, right? Everybody accepted. There wasn't a lot of contestation of votes. There wasn't claims of vote fraud. It was, it was a normal election that went normally in the United States. And then the Brazil election between Lula and Bolsonaro just, you know, again, went well. None of the worst fears of what was going to happen in Brazil happened, except for the storming riot thing. <laughs> Everything went just fine in Brazil. No, but the fact is, there, the fear was more civil war, right? Mm. That the losing side wouldn't accept it, and it would actually lead to political collapse, as opposed to a really bad afternoon in Brazilia. And I think the, the recent uh, Argentine election, where the kind of firebrand came into power, saying that he was going to do away with half of the government bureaucracy, and as I think tried to actually do some of it, it still went smoothly as an election. Mm. Nobody contested its validity. So you're right. We may This year may prove to be the year of geopolitical instability triggered by billions of people going to the polls, or we may turn around in a year and recognize that lots of things happened that many people objected to in terms of outcomes. But then in many places, those outcomes went democratically and smooth. And I suppose we could get into the whole question about illiberal democracies that, that Fried Zakaria has been talking about for you know 15 years. And those outcomes, as we see in, in Hungary and elsewhere, maybe we're going to have more outcomes like that in Europe over the next years. We just had a, you're in Amsterdam now, we just saw a, a, a Dutch election that saw the ascendancy of a far-right party to probably the leadership of the next government, although in a coalition that will constrain some mm -hmm. of that action. So there could be lots of illiberal or things that we deem illiberal results of a lot of these elections. But that, as you just said, is very different than democracy being on the ballot. Hungary, you know, clearly is, is a negative scenario. But we thought Poland was a more negative scenario. And then the coalition led by Donald Tusk, they haven't fully formed the government they want yet, but that that was a surprising outcome. People basically said, we don't want that. We don't want a permanent structural illiberal democracy a la Hungary. So. Yeah, and there are, there are countries with potentials for positive outcomes. Taiwan is one. Mexico is another. They're having their first election with between two women, which is interesting. South Africa, which has been kind of wallowing and stagnating for a while, it could like a shakeup could be good for them over there. And then there's also Molly and Chad, which I mentioned in the newsletter. They've they had a coup, both had a coup around three years ago, currently being ruled by military juntas. They have promised presidential elections this year. Obviously, we don't know if those are going to happen. Obviously, those happen. We don't know how exactly those are going to be executed or what the outcomes are going to be. But th there are also potentials for, for positive outcomes here, not just negative ones. So we'll see whether or not it ends up being the year of geopolitical instability or the year of democratic efflorescence or some combination. There it. 
2024 is going to be the biggest year ever for elections. Most people in the world will be living in a country that has national elections. So on the face of it, this is a great triumph for democracy, but there's a difference between quantity and quality. One of the early ones in the year is the election in Taiwan. There will be a choice between a more China-friendly candidate and a more sort of independence-leaning candidate, and that will influence relations across the Taiwan Strait, but also US-China tensions. Then there's the Indian election in the middle of the year, which is the biggest election in the world. But of course, the election everyone's going to be watching most closely is the election in the United States at the end of the year and the question of whether Donald Trump comes back for another term. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So what do we have next? So moving on from democracy. uh, Now we're going to talk about some things going on in the United States right now and give people a break from the boxing match that is just going to be revving up in the next 11 months or so, I thought that it'd be really nice to highlight some new state laws that people might be feeling enthusiastic about that are coming into play in January across the United States. A lot of different outlets had great roundups of this. The New York Times had, I think, the best one. NBC also had a nice one and Associated Press. So this is the amalgamation of a few of those roundups. Number one, Georgia, Indiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia are going to require financial literacy courses in high school. There's actually quite a few states now that uh, have pending legislation on this or already require it, something like 40, I think. 
which I am all for because, man, man, I could have saved myself from some mistakes. If I had. Yeah, that's one of these things where people have always been saying things like, great, I know when the Battle of Antietam was, but I don't know how to balance my checkbook. Right. Not that you shouldn't know Civil War history in the United States, but it is definitely true that one should know how to balance a checkbook. And many of us have been saying for years, we kind of make fun of the 50s where, where girls had to do home ec, like how to you know, cook and do a household and boys had to do shop or whatever the sex segregation of roles were, but everybody had to do civics. Civics was just how do you teach someone about the structure of government. And now we do none of it, right? There's no civics. There's no home act. There's no shop. There's no civics. Uh, and maybe, maybe we can say good riddance to home act, but even the civics courses are no longer a thing the way they were. Right, it's possibly one of the most important practical skills to have, yet a lot of Americans, when it comes to managing their personal finances, it continues to be a challenge. According to a recent financial literacy survey, 56% of Americans did not have a budget in 2021, and nearly 50% of households reported having credit card debt. A new Wisconsin law hopes to change all of that. I would say put back in home ec and just make everyone take it because I would have also learned, loved to learn how to cook and put back in, maybe not shop, but I don't know, like the toolbox you should have at home with the basic, you know, hammer nail. Right. How, how do you spackle a wall? But anyway, three cheers to the United States being a little bit more practical in high school. California is also adding media literacy to its K through 12 curriculum. I think there are maybe one or two states that already have that. New Jersey is one I know. I would love to see more of that. Moving on to Illinois, they are going to allow lawsuits from victims of deep fake pornography. So when, you know, someone's image is plastered onto someone else's body, let's say, and put it in porno that they definitely don't want to be in. And they have also decided that they are going to, this is an interesting one, cut off state funding for libraries that have banned books for partisan or doctrinal reasons. So they have banned book bans. And 22 states are going to raise their minimum wages. Many of those are tied to inflation. We have new gun laws coming to effect in California, Minnesota, Michigan, Washington, Illinois, and Colorado. A lot of these are ones that are broadly backed by the public. So red flag laws, banning ghost guns, things like that. Another California one, they're increasing access to drugs like Naxalone that reverse opioid overdoses. And also clearing good Samaritans that are helping out in a situation like that. So someone who might administer Naxalone to somebody overdosing, they are clearing them of any criminal or civil liability. So if somebody then dies and then turns for someone turns around and says, oh, they were completely negligent. I didn't even know. I didn't even think about that situation, but I'm glad that they are, are clearing people to, to help. And last but not least... <laughs> I don't know how people are going to like this one from the perspective of government should have money to put out programs. But from a perspective of you get more conservative about your money as you get older, people in Alabama will not have to pay any income tax anymore on work that's done over 40 hours per week. So any overtime work, they're not going to get taxed on it. While it can be hard to head back to work after the holidays, there is some good news for Alabama hourly employees. Starting this new year, the state is no longer taxing overtime pay. Alabama taxes hourly and overtime wages at 5%. But with this new law, any hours you work over 40 will be excluded from gross income. That's 5% more money in your wallet. Good for Alabama. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't I thought about it. I hadn't, that's one that I had not actually heard of being discussed. Sort of a tax break for overtime work. 
Well, which is which is, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here in the Netherlands. They have a 46 percent tax rate on overtime work, which you would think would kind of disincentivize overtime work. Like it has the reverse effect, right? Yeah. It makes it like, what's the point of doing the work if I'm going to get taxed at that rate, as opposed to give me more of that work, right? I, I suppose the, the the pushback would be it it incentivizes people to work too much. It is a very Dutch mentality versus an American mentality, right? The American mentality is very pro-work. The Dutch mentality is very, like, go enjoy your life and work is part of that. On the same token, if you're really trying to improve your lot financially, that doesn't make things easy. Work to live versus live to work. Yeah. So those are some things that are going on in the states other than the federal elections. And one little cute thing about the states, just to give people some feel-good stuff heading into 2024. The Department of State announced this was late 2023. They are back to pre-pandemic processing times for passports and in defiance of the stereotype that Americans don't travel. This is wild. In 1990, and this is from the Department of State, only 5% of Americans had a passport. Kind of shame on us. Today, that number is 48%. The- Wait, in 1990, only 5% of Americans had passports? Correct. Really? Correct. Wow. Yeah. That's... that. Uh, that that is, I would have guessed, closer to the thirty plus percent. Wow. Yeah, it's a shockingly it's small that number. Much in thirty three mm-hmm. years. Yeah. And now it's forty eight. You said forty eight percent, and even that accelerated because they say that there are now over one hundred sixty million valid U.S. passports in circulation, nearly double the amount from two thousand and seven. So that was a change, also that accelerated in the late aughts. Yeah, that is a that is a massive change, and it does completely go against the narrative of provincialism, mm-hmm. or at least the narrative that Americans are navel gazing and focused on themselves, which we are, and which every culture is, right? I think that that stereotype is a is a ubiquitous human stereotype. It's not really an American one. It may not be true of the Netherlands and you know other places where they learn sixteen languages perfectly and speak better than any native ever does, but. Those are global anomalies. They're not sort of indicative of global trends. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that the stereotype updates itself because I certainly get a lot of that from Europeans. Like, if I don't know the capital of something, oh, you're American. Ah, come on. 48% of us are traveling now. I suppose if you're a climate change type, that's not good news, but I I don't want to go there, I think. I, I think it's great that people are taking the privileges that they have to go abroad and learn from that and see other places, see other cultures, or maybe, I don't know, having a bunch of margaritas on a cruise somewhere. We're going to take that too. Yeah, there is that, which does not do anything to offset the provincialism. But still, those are, those are powerful trends. Yeah. Even discounting for the margarita cruises. They're powerful trends. Yeah. And I want to see those rates actually compared to other countries. I'll probably do some research on that at some point because I'm curious what that would compare to somewhere like Denmark or Portugal or wherever. Yeah. So hopefully we have uh, made people feel a bit better about the U.S. I am going to move on to vaccines. Shifting gears yet again. Yes to covid vaccines you thought we were done with covid vaccines it's the news is not really about the covid vaccine it's really about the type of covid vaccine so japanese regulators for the first time have approved what's called and i've never heard this pronounced i don't know if it's an sa rna vaccine or a sa rna vaccine probably the former 
that is a self-amplifying RNA vaccine. So we're all familiar with the mRNA vaccines. Uh, The messenger takes genetic instructions to produce an antigen, aka the stuff that triggers the body's immune response. And that's how the mRNA vaccines work. We all know that the COVID vaccines were the first time that we were able to use that technology. The difference between the mRNA and the saRNA is that the saRNA triggers the body to produce an enzyme that makes copies of the antigen mRNA. So this, I think this quote helps explain how that works. This is something from Reuters. This is Robin Shattuck, who's a vaccinologist at the Imperial College London. She says, it's a bit like having a manufacturing facility, and instead of having one copy of the recipe, you have multiple copies that you can hand around to multiple production lines within the cell to produce more protein. What's good about this from a less science-y, you know, abstract perspective, if you're not into the science of it, is that you get the same efficacy with a smaller dose of the vaccine. So the shots themselves can be cheaper. There are fewer side effects. This is why I said maybe this will change your mind because I, I don't know about you. I know a lot of people that have stopped taking COVID vaccines in part because the side effects are almost as bad as having COVID itself. So they're just like, screw it. Yes, that, that, is, that is exactly why. Yeah. And also <laughs> I've had three and I've had COVID and I'm, I'm more in the Unless demonstrated otherwise, there is a degree of antibody reality in me and most people at this point. Mm-hmm. So that that is not in any way an anti-vaccine comment. It is a when is enough enough in terms of some degree of not immunity, but but internal defense mechanism. But yeah, if you could say to me, there is now a shot that provides an internal matrix of immunity across a broad spectrum with no three days of illness, sure, shoot me away, sign me up, send me the needles. Yeah, and the point being is that so the first one happens to be for a COVID vaccine, but this can be applied to anything just like the mRNA vaccine. So Pfizer already has an sRNA vaccine for the flu in clinical trials. And there's also ones for Zika, RSV that are showing promise. When did RSV become a thing? Like, I don't believe any of us were talking about RSV five years ago or 10 years ago, even though we were all subject to some sort of retrovirus. And now suddenly it's become part of a triad of COVID flu and RSV vaccines. And we're using the word RSV as if we've been using it forever. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. RSV is going around. I can tell you why. I know why. Um, Because 2023, we had the first viable RSV vaccine ever. We've never had a vaccine for it before 2023. And number two, I think it even before then came into the public conversation with COVID because of all of the conversations suddenly about like the double COVID flu, double whammy COVID flu season. And they packed RSV in there. That was the first time that I had heard of RSV and not having kids. I feel like that's usually when people start to deal with RSV stuff or if they have elderly parents. But it's really because we we have a first viable vaccine for the first time. So it's out and about now. That's that's a good answer. Because it sort of entered the the public consciousness and conversation as if it had always been there. Mm. Like like the flu. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. RSV. Like, wait, when did this become a thing? Shingles, too. Suddenly it's a thing. Shingles? That's been a thing. Yes, but there hasn't been go get the shingles vaccine as a thing. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's because it's a different age group. I haven't been hearing about the shingles vaccine. 
But yeah, you it, get to my age group and everyone's yeah. like, get the shingles vaccine. Right. Go get the shingles vaccine. You got to get the shingles vaccine. Oh my God, shingles is so painful. Oh my God, it'll kill you. And it's probably all true. Like, I'm not, I'm not doubting that. I'm saying it's suddenly an acceptable part of every conversation. Did you get the shingles vaccine? Did you? Did you? Did you? Did, did you, you, Zachary? Did, did you get it? I have to get it. Get the shingles vaccine. That's a, that's a note. This is a conversational <laughs> podcast note to self. And anyone out there listening, I guess, who's what, 50 plus? Go get. Barrage me with emails saying, <laughs> get the shingles vaccine, Zachary. Get it. I know you're right. I don't have any judgment if you don't get the shingles vaccine or the COVID vaccine. Thank you. But then I can't complain about shingles if I get it. No, no, you can. That is correct. Yeah. Last little piece of info about the SARNA vaccines. EU approval for the, spe the specific COVID one is expected in 2024. So it's probably going to make its way over. 2024. Yeah. Yeah. So they're coming. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. Let's go on to space. Space, the final frontier. Yes, supposed to be a big year for space exploration. This little packet of information I'm about to read to you is from Semaphore. SpaceX is planning to launch 124 rockets this year, so I guess Elon Musk is doing something other than burning Twitter to the ground. That's They said 98 the previous year, so that's pretty impressive. And Semaphore says that no other organization has managed more than 63 in a single year, so that is pretty good. Aurora Clipper spacecraft is launching in 2024, looking for life on Jupiter's icy moon. The Artemis mission will fly humans to the moon's orbit for the first time in half a century. And there is an Asian space race heating up, it says, as Japan, China's, and India's space programs all aim for milestones. Japan is hoping to land a spacecraft on the moon this month. Japan is going to the moon. And if they land successfully, they'll be the fifth country ever to do that. Normally, it only takes a few days to get to the moon, but Japan is going to take a few months because they're using this lunar lander, nicknamed the Moon Sniper, to try to make a super accurate landing. And the reason that's important is that countries around the world are trying to figure out where exactly on the moon are valuable resources that could help support even longer missions, like water, for example, or key metals. And a lot of the potentially resource-rich areas also have hazards, like big rocks or craters, which is why accurate landings are becoming more important. The reason I'm so excited about this is that this mission, along with India's Chandrayaan-3 and the US's Artemis program, are making it feel like the race to space is back in a big, ambitious way. And we also have a 
member of the Progress Network, Che Bolden, who is building out a whole space information and consulting group. It's fascinating listening to Che and, and talking to him. He's a uh, career military. His father was administrator of NASA for years. And, you know, there's this multi billion dollar space ecosystem. I mean, yes, we're aware of it peripherally when we talk about uh, billionaire boys and their toys and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and, and Blue Origin, which is Bezos's space. But there's a lot more to it than just the, the, the billionaire you know, space race, there's this entire ecosystem that unless you're in it, most of us don't think about, I mean, obviously my joke about, you know, to go where no man go before there's a huge pop culture aspect of space. And then there's a huge military component of space. And then there's a huge commercial component that has kind of existed beneath the radar, even funny to say beneath the radar, given that, you know, a lot of tracking now is in space by satellites and not by radar. And I don't know that there's anything quite that substantial in terms of money, effort, and and national interest that gets less attention mm. publicly than space and satellites and exploration. There's now talk of a new moon landing. So there, you know, it's a fascinating, dynamic part of the world that we don't pay attention to, or not even part of the world, part of the the ecosystem, not even part of the ecosystem, part of the galactic ether universe in which we all swim i do think elon musk is an, an exception to that yes we pay attention to spacex and musk it's true but we end up paying more attention to like the rocket launch than what they're actually doing once they go up right i think it's just because most of us are just not fully aware of the impact that a lot of the nasa missions have because it's on such a long timeline like, you know, last year, they got samples from the first deep space object, this asteroid that I was around, back during the formation of our solar system. You know, it took, what, five or seven years for it to return? So it's just like the, the attention span is just not going to last for that long, you know? It's a long lead time. But even the orbital stuff, research, things were bl blasting into synchronous and asynchronous orbit above the Earth. Like, even that doesn't get very much attention unless something actually falls out of the sky. Like we pay less attention to it going up than we do to it going down. Kind of a progress network metaphor. We pay attention to it when it's falling. We don't pay attention to it when it's ascending. Well, related, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but this is vaguely related. One sort of progress piece that I have seen going around in this early part of 2024, we don't usually talk about how safe the aviation industry is, and we normally focus so much on fatalities and crashes. They're such a major part of the news cycle. But one thing that has happened with the plane that was engulfed in flames in Japan in the early bit of 2024 is that I have seen a lot of coverage talking about how this is a success of modern aviation, that they got you know 379 passengers out of the plane unharmed. I learned from coverage of that, that apparently in the U.S. at least, manufacturing of planes has a regulation that everyone should be able to get out of the plane in 90 seconds. So in Japan, it wasn't 90 seconds. It was more like 20 minutes for the full evacuation. But they say that they were able to do that in part because they stayed calm, followed instructions, and most importantly, followed the instruction not to bring your bags with you. They actually say that that was a big factor in saving everyone that nobody was taking time trying to get their stuff and you know tripping over it you can imagine how that might be but it was interesting because it was you know 
was one of the first, maybe the only time I've seen news coverage that was like, hey, this went really well. And you should probably know that there are reasons why this went really well. No, it's definitely true. I mean, other than helicopters, which do have a higher rate of fatality, and even that's skewed, by the way, by rescue helicopters, meaning helicopter fatality statistics are look a lot worse because it includes highly dangerous flying situations, you know, where someone tries to rescue someone on a mountain or some incredibly difficult place where there is a higher likelihood of an accident, as opposed to just going from lower Manhattan to JFK. I was talking to my younger son the other day. One of the weirdest aspects of many weird aspects of being in New York after 9-11 was that in October of 2001, the worst airplane crash happened since over the past 23 years in the United States. There was a flight, I think, going to the Dominican Republic had just taken off from JFK and crashed 20 miles after takeoff and killed everyone aboard. And the immediate assumption in October of 2001 was that this was another act of terrorism, like we'd just gone through 9-11. And it turned out it was, I don't know if it was a mechanical or pilot error, but nothing like that has happened since. That was 22 years ago. And you know you the weird Malaysia flight, which no one knows what happened to. I mean, I think everyone knows that it went down just how and where and when. But yeah, it's incredible how safe flying is. Considering the number of flights. Considering all the Americans now with their passports that are flying around. That's right. Like, yeah, that's incredible. Get a passport and fly. So. That's all I have for today. That's all we got. We will be back next week with another episode and with an interview. We want to thank you all for listening and tuning in again. Comments, questions, critiques are all welcome. Go to theprogressnetwork.org and uh, send us whatever you want to send us, and we will respond accordingly. And thank you again. Sign up for our newsletter. What could go right? comes out every week it's free shows up in your mailbox and gives a nice digest of what's going on in the world that we think should get more attention than it is getting and of course we want to thank the doris duke foundation for their continued support which is helping us make this whole thing possible week to week so thank you emma thank you all thank you and we are looking forward to spending 2024 with y'all What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plugglomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.